Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and even strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution, as these podcasts will feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on Tap, we have Jaws, starring Roy Scheider, Richard Dreyfuss, Robert Shaw, directed by Steven Spielberg. And we're back. Welcome back to Rye Smile Films. Today we're opening up a brand new cast. You know, deviating from what we did last week, we did some small batch film review with Godzilla, King of the Monsters. Now we're right back in it. We're smack dab in the middle of the summer movie season. It's been interesting to say the least. Yeah, we've had some good and we've had some bad. Uh, I think we're off to mostly a better start than the previous two summers. Sure, sure. I don't think there's anything that's been outstanding yet. Yeah. Uh, but there's been some things that uh, put past summers to shame or anything mm-hmm. in the summer would have killed to have been as good as... I guess we could start it with Endgame moving on to... I don't know. Have you seen Rocketman yet? No. We saw Rocketman this yeah? weekend too. What do you... Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll Excellent. talk about it, I'm sure, at some point. Excellent. Awesome. So, yeah, we're going to get right into it. This cask is going to be called the Summer Tentpole Hall of Fame, looking at tentpole studio blockbuster films that have really set the standard and really kind of changed the course of filmmaking. And it's kind of the reason why, you know, the summer is such a hot commodity. It's the season that funds all of the rest of the movie studios' endeavors for the rest of the year. Exactly. With the exception of maybe the holiday season. Yeah. This is four quadrant, mm-hmm. tentpole, family, fun, friendly, yeah. popcorn, yeah. PG-13 at most. And it started with the film that we're going to be talking about today, 1975's Jaws, which prior to this, you know, that really wasn't happening in the summer. And this kind of opened the doors, you know, for films to be released during this time. But let's get right to it. We're going to, we still have some of the Duncan Taylor. We opened this up a few weeks mm-hmm. back. This was the World Whiskey Awards category silver winner for Scotch whiskey, age 12 years. Um, what do you say we pour ourselves some? Let's do it. So this compares to the Bib and Tucker, right? Yep. I'm going to drink to your leg, Matt. Let's drink to your leg. Let's drink to our legs. Let's drink to our legs. <laughs> Set me up perfect. Excellent. Cheers. To your leg. Yep. And Marianne Moffat. Mm-hmm. That's pretty good. That's, you know, it's real smooth on the front end. You're not going to find a lot of Scotch whiskeys that provide that. really like the peat flavor that Scotch has. Mm-hmm. Much different than the bourbon. Like, that's real hard at the yeah. beginning and then maybe smooths out. This is smooth through front to back, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, the only thing missing uh, right now, you know, I'm in my Jaws tank top. Uh, the only thing missing is the beach and a great white shark. But maybe we're going to get that here in a little bit. Sunscreen, did you bring it? Oh, no, I didn't. I got it. I tan, I tan well, though. I do not. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Before we get the the show started, shout out to the Salt Avocado uh, underscore twenty two, who in response to our, us talking about cinematic monsters, which was a lot of fun last week, sure um, provided one of his choices, which is actually the monster from Cloverfield. Now, I think I bashed on that film in last week's review, saying it was kind of shit, and I think the movie is shit. Um, it's kind of a build up for something that I don't think really pays off. But there's no denying that that monster is kind of is kind of unique and, and pretty cool, almost spider mantis like. One of the things we talk a lot about is the subtlety and what we don't see compared to what we see. Yes. That has that a little bit in that film because you never really get that monster full on in that movie. No, it's it's through shaky cam, which kind of alludes to a little bit of the mystery. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's effective. I'm with you. It's not in my pantheon of great films, but it's memorable. Mm -hmm. Say that. And I think it's a monster that kind of lived on in, you know, uh, a series that's kind of secret in like in um, uh, 10 Cloverfield Lane, which is still kind of so. Terrific. Yeah, that's that's way better actually. Agreed. 
But let's get to it. Let's start with a little flight. And since we're talking about the man himself today, Steven Spielberg, you know, he might not be necessarily my favorite director of all time, but there's no denying that he might be the most iconic director, at least in our lifetimes. We missed out on the Hitchcock, you know, bandwagon because we weren't of age yet. But there's no denying it isn't Spielberg. I couldn't disagree with you, especially for this type of cast that we're doing. Yep. Big summer, enjoyable entertainment movie. Yes. Yeah. Excellent. So what better way than to start with a flight by naming our top three favorite Spielberg films. So Matt, where are you at with number three? So you know, on occasion, I like to step out of what's in the wheelhouse of directors. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, if I was to say, Jesse, what's my favorite Woody Allen movie? You would tell me it's... Yeah. Match point. Right. So this is a semi-match point for Steven Spielberg. Okay. And I'm going to give you Munich. Okay. I really like that film. Mm -hmm. Matter of fact, I've done that film in my class uh, a few few times. Mm -hmm. It's much different. I don't know if that's really family fodder. Uh, it's pretty no, grim. It's that. pretty. It's pretty pedantic. And so far as there's a story that we're going to tell it out mm-hmm. very deliberately. Yeah. Uh, this is not explosions and cute aliens and Reese's pieces mm-hmm. and this is a pretty serious movie, a historical depiction of a really tragic event that happened. And then, you know, we talk about actors on this yeah. a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think. Eric Bana, if we were ever to do a list of those that are really underrated for yeah. me, yeah. he would make that list. I, I don't know if he would, because the other guy would be some of the guys you don't like. Like, who's the guy Clive that. Clive You hate him. <laughs> yeah. You hate I, him. I don't hate Eric Bana, though. I thought Eric Bana was dealt kind of a bad hand by the Angley Hulk. But yes. But I'm kind of with you. He's kind of. Uh, and then also, kind of, he was in Troy, which I don't think he's terrible, but that's kind of not a great film either. I think it's his. Problem would be poor film choices. Now again, yeah. we don't know what scripts came across his yeah. agent's desk for him, so that's a whole different conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, not quite in the category of what could have been, because there was some there, there. Yeah. yeah. But what could have been, maybe? It's a unique choice. I don't think a lot of people are going to be picking Munich, and you know, in kind of Spielberg's historical section, that's like a whole subgenre within his filmography. Yeah, that's one of the best. It is being a spy thriller, doesn't it? Yep. Yeah. I'm actually going to tap into that same subgenre for my number three and uh, from 1998, Saving Private Ryan. Uh, you know, arguably one of the, the better war films ever made. But, you know, if the film had ended after like the 35, 40 minute mark, like that's a pretty remarkable opening sequence. Uh, the landing on Omaha Beach, which um, we're kind of celebrating 75 years of uh, this uh, this year or today, actually, I today. think, of this recording. Yeah. Did you see that story that I did to, to hijack your yeah, go number ahead. three? Yeah. Those two men that paratrooped into the beach mm-hmm. in Normandy mm-hmm. when they were 24 years old or oh, something wow. uh-uh. did it again today. Oh, wow. Yeah, 97 or 98, something yeah, along those yeah. lines. And jump. Isn't that cool? Amen to that. How old are they? Like 90, 98, right? Jeez, 75 yeah. years. Some 90, yeah. Yeah, some 90 plus. Yeah. Maybe us at that age. We'll see. Yeah. But amen to that. That's awesome. Uh, but yeah, there's no denying the power of that film and the visceral kind of experience that, you know, provides on an outlook of war. This kind of soul quest to save this one lone uh, remaining um, son of this family, and they've all just been killed throughout this war. That opening twenty minutes mm-hmm. is—it's remarkable. Like twenty minutes, I'll never forget. In film. it's hard to look at, and it's hard to look away. Yeah, it's that's hard to explain. But I think the whole film in general is just pretty incredible. And if I've had the adult Spielberg, who he kind of grew up after, like Jurassic Park, that Schindler's List time after that. This is uh, this is I think one of his better films from that era. So that's number three for me. 
Okay, so then I'll go at number two, and this is also a little bit of a cheat on my part. There's no cheating. It's our own show. I say, but what are yeah. the rules, right? Yeah. <laughs> Toby Hooper directed this movie, but supposedly Spielberg helped him out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. That's Poltergeist. Yeah. Uh, what are you going to say? Yeah, that he didn't. It, it, that, that film, like, so many films from the 80s and the, even some stuff I would even throw Stranger Things and, like, Super 8 into that mix had that Spielbergian kind of feel to it. One of the things Spielberg likes to do is break the tension in films with the use of children in comedy. Mm-hmm. Yep. Like Jurassic Park always comes to mind with yep. Sam Neill and the Claw. That's classic mm-hmm. Spielberg. Mm-hmm. What I think is unique about Poltergeist is it's still that sort of family friendly as much as you can do that at a PG-13 level film with yeah. horror. Yep. Now again, I don't think Mommy and Daddy took Little Susie at 6 to the film. <laughs> no, yeah. But I bet at 11 or 12 because I know that's about when we saw it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you have some cute moments like with the football helmet on as she slides across the floor. I want pepperoni pizza. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And then that line, she comes in really good on channel three or mm-hmm. channel four. Mm-hmm. Um, but then good. there's some moments in there too. The tree part always got me and that goddamn clown. Man. Then the guy peeling his face off. And that movie's more synonymous kind of like with the curse associated with like all the people involved and just kind of the tragedies associated with that. God bless Heather O'Rourke. Yeah, I I, I like I dig Poltergeist too, but I I almost want to. It's a Spielberg film, like even though it's Toby Hooper, I don't see Toby Hooper's handprints. I see Spielberg's handprints all over that thing. Yeah, bring me up for a personal foul. Go Raptors, <laughs> and we'll go, ring it up. Okay. Oh, go Raptors. Okay, yeah, right. excellent. Yeah, number two for me. Um, I'm gonna go a little outside of the box too with a film of that really doesn't get talked about a lot in Spielberg's filmography, and it's kind of a shame. And it's actually The Adventures of Tintin. Uh, this is a film that's kind of uh, that in that vein of that motion capture that Robert Zemeckis helped kind of popularize with Polar Express and Beowulf. But here it's actually John. I actually kind of really dig Tintin. I was I've read a lot of those comic books and the cartoon that they did in the late '80s, early '90s. Uh, great cast: Andy Serkis, you know, Jamie Bell, Daniel Craig, Simon Pegg, and Nick Frost. Like all the, all these players are there, and there's a really cool. Uh, uh, long take in the middle it's like eight minutes and it doesn't continue and it doesn't cut and it's one big action sequence which is something that spielberg likes to do are these kind of long take sequences and this is in animation but even animated films don't even dabble in this type of technique i think it's a fun film it's something that kind of got uh shot off the rails too they were going to do a whole kind of series on tin tim peter jackson was going to do the next one and maybe that'll happen i doubt it but i think it's it's very criminally underrated actually all right matt number one where are you at oh jesse number one where are you at should we go on the count of three <laughs> yeah let's do it one two three raiders, raiders of the lost, lost ark yeah to that yeah i don't think spielberg's ever been clicking on more cylinders than he wasn't in, in this film and you know in my book i think there's like maybe four or five like truly perfect films that i really can't poke holes in and I just enjoy it so much. This is definitely one of them. I love Raiders. Again, we talked about great opening sequences. Mm-hmm. That's the opening sequence in the film. And that would be the penultimate chase in a lot of movies. Yeah. And what I can say about this is, mm-hmm. as great as it is, mm-hmm. the other sequences outdo it. Oh, yeah. That bit on the, the car chase bit. Mm-hmm. On the trucks. The, the, the convoy. Con- oh, my gosh, Jesse. Real That's quick. That's fantastic. Real quick, as a kid, I used to have one of those uh, motorized Jeeps. Mm-hmm. Mm. It was a red one. And I, you know, I had the whole Indiana Jones get up with like my own whip and my hat. 
which I got from Disneyland. And I would reenact this scene in the backyard. <laughs> but since I'm an only child, I had to kind of do everything myself. So I would actually put a rock on the accelerator and I would let the thing drag me around like he did behind the Jeep. Oh, that's awesome. There's photos of that somewhere. I wish I, I, wish I could find one. But, you know, for it started such a great series. And it started with Spielberg really wanted to take a handle on a James Bond film. And Lucas, they kind of came together. It was like, I got something better. Playing off those old serials... You know, you have Temple of Doom, Crusade, Crystal Skull. And I don't think it ever got better than this high point. There's some good stuff in there. But for a pure adventure film with an original character, damn it, it's it's awesome. Beautifully written by Lawrence Kasdan. Mm-hmm. Doesn't get enough love for a superb script. Yep. And we're going to get into that here pretty soon, too. Yeah, yeah. A little bit of a tease for the audience. Yeah. Yeah, when that movie came out, we saw it four times in the theater that summer, and that was unheard of. Mm-hmm. We maybe went to the theater four times mm-hmm. back in those days in my entire life. Yeah. But I talked to everybody in the world to take mm-hmm. me to see that movie, and everybody loved it. I have, in my life, yeah. I've never met a person that doesn't have nice mm-hmm. things to say about Raiders of the Lost mm-hmm. Ark. It's got like such a hateable villain like Nazis. Like it's It's got that going for it. You know, the melting bit at the end when they open the yard. The technology that they used on that melting, mm-hmm. which was wax and everything from... Uh, a hair dryer and the heat on that to infrared. That's crazy the mm-hmm. way that they went about melting that yep. guy's face and how long that took. Yep. But if you watch that in slow motion and break it down, yeah. you can see the breakdown of like, okay, take this and replace it with it. It's it's remarkable. Yes. The attention to detail mm-hmm. that they played just to that. To that, the well of the souls. I could talk about Rare's Lost Ark all day. It's, but it would just be like a praise of Raiders. Like I don't like necessarily know if I would talk about anything bad about it because every time I put it on and watch it, I'm just like so giddy watching it. Yeah, the movie's fantastic. Yeah. And then yeah, then the series kind of went on its path. Do I really do love Last Crusade and that almost kind of snuck in here at number four. Also kind of like Jurassic Park as well. Mm-hmm. It's another another fun film. And then also kind of underrated as well as Duel. Uh, done right before this film. You can almost call Duel Jaws on, on the road. Jurassic Park was close for me, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, didn't quite make it, but it's close. Mm-hmm. I even kind of like Catch Me If You Can. There, there's some stuff in there that's in consideration, but for top three, like that's that that's it for me. And if you open it up to everything that he directed mm-hmm. or wrote produced. or produced, yep. the entire decade might as well just be called 1980s, a.k.a. Spielberg. Yep. We didn't get into Schindler's List yeah. or The Terminal, mm-hmm. uh, members of a geisha. Yep. There's plenty of other things in there that... Um, and then, you know, I liked it a lot as a kid. It has not aged well. Yeah. But you can't tell me the first time you saw E.T. that it wasn't wasn't really good. I remember E.T., the BHS was like green and black, and I thought that was really different and, and interesting. You know, and, and at first, yeah, it's, it's great. But on the surface, as it ages, like with me as I age, oh, I can't do E.T. Like I, I can't anymore. I think it's one of the most overrated films ever. But... Okay, yeah, no argument for me in that regard. Super overrated. But no denying the legacy, yeah. But as a kid, and you might have come to it, because I'm a little older than you. A little too late, yeah. But as a kid, when that came out, Mm -hmm. and that movie was really, really fun. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say it was a cinematic masterpiece when it came to storytelling. Sure. But again, back to that idea of if we can find a way to incorporate a kid... Mm -hmm then we can make it a little bit more family accessible. Come on, that movie does that yeah. in spades. Yep. 
Again, I'm not going to defend E.T. today, but <laughs> yeah. I'm not also going to tell you, I'm not too proud to tell you also, yeah, you when did. I was a young, younger version of myself, you, I loved that you movie. You did enjoy it. And no kid that I know didn't love that movie. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But Raiders is still better. Raiders <laughs> is way better. Excellent. Well, let us know what your uh, favorite Spielberg films are. I mean, there's there's a ton to choose from. Hit us up on any of the social media. Hit us up on the email. We'll repeat that at the end of uh, the episode like we always do. But let's get right to it. I'm ready to jump in that shark cage, Matt. You Hopefully. are going to go in that, with that, the shark in the water, the yeah. cage goes in the water. Yeah. <laughs> you go in the water. Let's do it. Let's get in there. Let's get to what we're here for. Let's get to our review of Jaws. Jaws opens up with some very iconic music cues, courtesy of John Williams. So I'm just going to start right off the bat. If none of this music is in this film, I don't think it works. Like, not one iota. Look, the legacy of the music is such that kids that have never seen that movie Mm -hmm. this summer at your local pool will be attacking each other in the water, scored to the... That we saw introduced in this film in 1974. Five, seventy five, yeah. Two damn notes. It's two notes. Jesse, yeah. That is, that in a nutshell speaks to the legacy mm-hmm. of this film. Yeah. Six year old, my my six year old daughter has never seen Jaws. Yeah. She knows what that means. When yeah. I play that, she knows what that means. Yeah, and I think you know, I think John Williams secretly saved Spielberg and his film because as much problems they were having with the shark and in the editing room, not being able to show the mechanical just debauchery that was happening, like they couldn't show it; it wasn't working. Yeah, I think the music alluded to being able to show less because the music's the shark, and it kind of fell into that territory of less is more, and what you don't see is scarier than what you do see. It's on full display here in this scene and in this opening scene introduced to the Jaws' first victim, Chrissy. And what are we doing? We're going swimming. swimming. Yeah. yeah. With, uh, with, with with Mr. Drunk, with Drunk Man here. Here on, um, you know, they're here in Martha's Vineyard and, you know, kind of going for that skinny dip moonlight swim. And we get that first, first bit of Jaws. We're getting that first kind of jump scare, this iconic opening sequence where we just kind of, we get, again, we get the music and then we get like this camera. Mm-hmm from like below and we see her just kind of treading water and like as like little kids you're like oh my god it's a naked woman like mm-hmm. can i see something up there and it quickly turns to absolute fright as this thing and i've oh this is one thing i've always just kind of wanted like man i wonder what's happening under that water and i bet it's just like absolutely awful as it just tears her up in the water here it does the really great thing that this film does is we get a lot of her almost as a buoy yep what like shoulder width up above the water yeah shoulders above Mm -hmm. and then she goes under and it's almost like the shark's playing with her a little bit and she's sort of like what just happened and then she goes down and again like what you just said Mm -hmm. it's what you don't see yep here's the thing that i think really makes jaws work okay and the terror thing in the water you and i are much less capable of defending ourselves against a shark Mm -hmm. the water essentially renders us helpless versus the antagonist in this film this man eater Mm -hmm. and i love that it puts us at such a disadvantage because then to overcome that you have a really interesting problem you can't breathe because you can't breathe Mm -hmm. so you can't stay under it's gonna be faster it's streamlined and who who knows how far it can go Mm -hmm. and you're basically having to create little islands which is what a boat is yep 
And that's not even addressing the problem because it's still not on the... Well, it does get on the boat later. Yeah. But I love that. Like, <laughs> he right? does get on the boat Doesn't later. Doesn't it? Right? That's Quint. Yep. I think that's really, really, really cool. Yeah. It's a great villain. It's, it's a great villain. You're, and it's something you're within his atmosphere. It's, again, I think why, you know, Alien works so well, too. Like, when the alien's, like, on that ship, like, you're kind of in its domain, therefore giving you a complete disadvantage yeah so you're like going into instant survival mode well chrissy doesn't make it obviously and um we're introduced to the film's protagonist martin brody and we got the uh, funko pop version of martin brody uh uh, sheriff brody here on our thing and he actually has uh the chum bucket and his cigarette (laughs) which we're gonna get into that little bit here in a in a little bit, but he's 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 this um, new sheriff um, from New York, you know, kind of hesitantly, kind of I don't I kind of get the impression he really doesn't want to be in Nantucket here in here in Massachusetts. He's scared to death of the water. Yep. By with some instance that uh, we've never kind of really under, understood why, and I am you know necessarily I don't even know if we we really need to know. Yeah. But he's got a wife and two kids, uh, and he's just kind of going about the day to day of of Amity Island here. And, you know, he gets a lot of blowback from, you know, kind of the higher ups in town. There's like this interesting social hierarchy at play in Amity Island run by our friend Murray Hamilton, Mr. Robinson, who plays even more of a bastard in this film. <laughs> as I, I don't even you know if he's ever given a name. I just call him the mayor from Jaws. Like, yeah. I'm just going to call him from that. I think they call him Murray at one point mm-hmm. but uh he catches wind of the shark attack and he goes into instant gotta close these beaches down gotta shut them down and we learn about you know the ill-conceived plot of our i would call it the second villain of the film mr murray hamilton right which no um amity is um a summer town marty this is your first summer you don't know <laughs> and that means summer dollars we have to stay open because this is the only economic gain that we actually have coming in here to like sustain <laughs> life and he wants to shut that down and this quickly becomes kind of like a, a tug of war between those two until it reaches just an absolute massacre later later on in the film. The mayor's more worried about losing revenue for the summer than he is about the people's safety. Mm-hmm. If they don't have any revenue coming in, then the town essentially dries up during the off season as yeah. well. So he's a little bit compromised in the reasons that he does what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. But you really do see that when they don't capture the shark, but mm-hmm. they think it's they, or they want to think it's the shark. Yeah. And then you go to the whole bite radius and you find out this is much too small. Yeah. It's a tiger shark. Oh, what? what? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And he just is so quick to acquiesce to mm-hmm. whatever amphi- or whatever mm-hmm. animal they bring aboard. Or, I'll never sure. I'll never forget that like kind of like anchor like three piece suit that he has. It's like so atrocious. Seersucker, buddy. <laughs> Seersucker, yeah. Yeah. But things kind of go about as normal, and we find, and we kind of get, you know, everyone at the beach, you know, Brody, all the townies, and the summer season's kind of opening up, but oh man, we're about to fully get it here. I always remember in this scene, two things. I remember Pippet, little dog that is mm. playing fetch with this owner, and he's later on, he's like, Pippet, Pippet, Pippet's been an uh, appetizer already. Consumed. And then the full course meal that's about to be served off little Alex Kinter, mm. oh my, his little raft. And his mom didn't even want him out there. He's all wrinkled up. But man, this shark just absolutely devours him. But before before we do, before we kind of get like that aftermath, we got to talk about a little cinematic technique here that's used. I think the most brilliant shot of the entire film, which is the dolly zoom on 
on uh, Chief Brody. Yeah. So it's called the Dolly Zoom, um, also called the Vertigo Shot, mm-hmm. uh, popularized by Hitchcock in the film Vertigo. What it is is it's your film camera on some Dolly track, and it's either moving in or pulling out. In this instance, it's it's moving in towards Roy Scheider, and then the focal zooms uh, zooming out. Yeah. So it kind of creates that stretching effect. It's also used very brilliantly in Poltergeist when Joe Beth Williams at the end of that hallway. Oh, you're right. And it just seems to kind of stretch very oh, you're un- right. unnaturally. Yeah. This is my, I love this shot. And, and the music kind of just kind of shows just like the churning in the stomach of Brody of like, oh God, it's, it's happening. Here's number two. Mm-hmm. Jesus. Yeah. Um, I think another really notable moment in this film is the fact that Spielberg allows Alex Kinter to be consumed. Yeah. You and I both know one of the big no-nos is to kill kids mm-hmm. in film. That's really tough to do. Yeah, he's number two. <laughs> and I mean, we and you get a better look at him getting consumed than mm-hmm. you do Chrissy at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. You, get you little... see him go down, and then this the waterfall of blood behind mm-hmm. him. Mm-hmm. Like we see Alex get eaten. Yes, and that's really brave to do that because you know you just you don't mess around with puppies mm-hmm. and you don't mess around with children. But because the kid gets consumed, that means we don't know as an audience who is safe and who isn't. Literally everybody, if the kid can get consumed. Everybody's fair game. Yeah, if the kid's eaten by the shark, you, I, Mm -hmm. anybody. I love the line that Brody gives later on. He's like, like, we don't have to serve him up a smorgasbord. It's kind of what's happening Exactly. Yeah, so raises the stakes considerably. Sure. Yeah. And then we immediately go into full panic mode and Martin, again, I want to close the beaches, but they're not going to let him do that. And then we're introduced to, I think, with the fil- the film's greatest character, Mr. Quint, played by Robert Shaw, who, you know, I equate Robert Shaw with two films. It's this one and then From Russia with Love is Red Grant, the adversary. It's that great scene on the train. But Robert Shaw infamously on this film was kind of a bit of a pest and a nuisance. Like I wrote some notes down here that notoriously difficult to work with because he was trying to like he would go back and forth between canada and the u.s because he was uh had some tax evasion problems kind of like a wesley snipes mm. and then would binge drink 24 7 oh yeah and then would just struck up this huge feud with richard dreyfus they couldn't stand it they wanted to kill each other which and it, plays out on screen perfectly yeah especially on the boat in the middle on the ocean but he he sells this kind of like kind of psycho like fisherman who's seen some shit in his time and he's like i'll kill that shock for you give you the head the tail whole damn whole thing. damn thing he's like yeah so he kind of and that iconically just screeches his nails on the chalkboard like that's like his like call to like pay attention to me everybody but they're not quick to listen to it because he's the town loony he's like kind of kind of got that urban legend that chalkboard that he scratches his nails on also mm-hmm. has been illustrated by him in that town meeting which mm-hmm. shows a shark and then him catching that shark He's just an odd character, yep. but essential to the film. And the fact that Robert Shaw, like you mentioned, is drunk on set <laughs> only leads into that. He's just so unhinged and so unpredictable. Yeah. What I love about this mm-hmm. is a bit later on when they take the orca out. Yeah. This little Shantate boat that couldn't even barely carry <laughs> you and me yeah. is going to take down a shark that's the size of Rhode Island. Yeah, yeah. No, it's called the Orca. Yeah. It should be called the Minnow. Mm-hmm. And it's... <laughs> it's ironic is what it is. It, it, indeed. And it just it starts crumbling. This around. little tugboat. Yeah. No chance. By Mr. Mr. Quint. Almost played by either Lee Marvin or Sterling Hayden. Oh, wow. 
interesting. Lee but, Marvin would have been interesting. Yeah, I think it's it's this is Shaw's role. Like it's this, his movie. this, it's a swan song too. I think he died like one or two years after this. Um, I don't think he's ever been better than he he was in this film, and he get it get it gets better come coming up. Yeah. But yeah, we're in full panic mode. You know now, like you kind of got these uh Boston or this Bo- these Bostonian lynch mobs trying to like come up and, and hunt the shark. Mrs. Kinter's offered up some reward, and it just it's just a total frenzy. And they're taking dynamite and they're shotgunning the water, trying to come up with something. But we're introduced to our second big main character, Mr. Matt Hooper, played by Richard Dreyfus, who's kind of from the. Oceanographic Institute, he's a bit of a shark expert. He's come to kind of diagnose their problem and instantly tells them what we just mentioned earlier was they catch a shark, tiger shark, and he measures the bite radiuses after he's analyzed the victim and they don't match up. There's no way that this could be the same shark. Yeah, so Murray Hamilton's excited as can be and Matt Hooper said, you know, you still got a shark problem out there and there's there's kind of no way to know. And one of my favorite parts of the entire film, in comes Mrs. Kinter from uh, probably the funeral of her son as they're celebrating with 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 the shark and gives uh, Roy Scheider, Chief Brody, the one of the greatest all time cinematic slaps. I wouldn't call it slap; it was like straight punch. <laughs> yeah, just across the face, saying that she found out about the girl that was killed, that you knew about it, and you didn't close the beaches, and you said it was safe to everyone to go swimming, and now my boy is dead, and this really shakes shakes him up. I think. Well, because he's up, like he knew that this could could have been avoidable, mm-hmm. but the damn mayor just won't close the beach. Yeah. So a lot of times in film, you and I talk about this. Yeah. We have to find a way for the obvious solution to not mm-hmm. play out on screen. Okay, so I've made this comment before. If we're yeah. sitting in here recording this podcast and we hear "get out" and like blood starts coming out of your wall, yep, I'm gone. Yeah. I'm not going to finish the podcast. I've seen too much shit to know how that like goes so south. We're not going to look into it. <laughs> no We're just going to get out of here. In movies, though, mm-hmm. if you leave, there's no story. The trick then is, how do you make sure that they don't quote-unquote leave because of natural conditions that prohibit them from doing so? And in this case, yeah, close the beach. Mm-hmm. Except, and we disagree now, but it's easy at the 500-foot view to disagree in yep. the movie theater. Yep. If they close the beach season, all the tourists go away and the town dries up. And there's no movie. <laughs> so yeah. we see why they can't close the beach. Mm-hmm. Don't go in that house. Let's not go in the house. Oh, but, wait. Close the beach. But it provides conflict to Brody, too. Exactly. It makes him flawed. He'd made bad decisions. And now the rest of the film's about him trying to be overly cautious about how things go about next. And Murray Hamilton's pretty threatening to him in a lot of ways mm-hmm. you know i'm one that's in charge here it's sort of alluding to if you don't like this i'll find a an officer that does see things a bit more my way mm-hmm. it'd be a shame that you guys moved out here for nothing yeah and he's really up against it morally and economically chief brody yes found out that a girl got killed here last week and you knew it you knew there was a shark out there you knew it was dangerous but you let people go swimming anyway you knew all those things 
Still, my boy is dead now. There's nothing you can do about it. Let's talk a little bit about the source inspiration for the film Jaws, actually based on a book by Peter Benchley written in 1974. And he actually based a lot of that book on um, some pretty major shark attacks that happened in 1916 around kind of the same area there up in, um, you know, the that Nantucket, Hannesport area which kind of similarly it was like a rogue great white shark actually killing a lot of people in that area and it was the inspiration for this story have you ever read the book jaws i never have i haven't either but i was looking into a little bit of you know like the kind of the differences in the thing and there's actually one pretty major difference that didn't make it in and there's a whole subplot of ellen brody actually having kind of like a quasi affair with matt hooper oh wow yeah which kind of like this movie already has a lot going on. I don't know if, like, on film that could, like, sustain, like, another kind of subplot. Especially if they're on the boat the entire time. Or maybe sure. that could have been pretty great. A conflict on sea. Yeah. Yeah. <coughs> wow. But, yeah. Yeah. I don't know why that was decided to be taken out. But the two producers got a hold of this book. They read it. They're like, we got to make this into a film. It's great. And they both of them say iconically now, had we read it a second time, we wouldn't have made this film because we wouldn't have realized how difficult it would have been to do the stuff on the ocean <laughs> electronics and water don't tend to go very well with each other right? yeah exactly wow. so then it kind of made the rounds through hollywood they were trying to put various scripts together and then it gets into the hands of steven spielberg a then kind of unknown spielberg who had really kind of only done a, a some work in like in television um again i as i mentioned earlier on a tv film called duel which is essentially jaws on the open road it's semi truck versus little sedan with dennis weaver oh wow yeah uh, so it's a similar film. So he kind of had that that knack, and then he did the Sugarland Express. But this was kind of like the first big thing, and he was kind of a universal player already. Had been hanging out around there as a kid, and this was kind of like his first kind of big test. And Jesus, like he couldn't have picked like a worse test to do. Well, not to steal your thunder, but mm -hmm. this movie was basically canned twice. Mm -hmm. It was a year and a half over budget. It was oh. triple the or over release date. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry. <clears throat> it was twice, maybe three times the cost. Yep. The damn shark kept breaking down. Yeah. And for a long time there, they were going to go with a movie that basically had no shark because they couldn't figure out how to do it. Yeah. Could you imagine that? Yeah. This movie was on the ropes mm -hmm. multiple times. And it's only through just show up to set and keep going and Steven Spielberg's power of persuasion and sort of leads to why he had the career that he did because there's lots of obstacles for yeah. everybody that makes movies. Yeah. That This movie... Never should have seen Light of Jesse. Yeah. The original title of this film mm -hmm. was Leviathan Rising. Yeah. So think <laughs> about that compared to Jaws and the heavy tone in that compared to yep. what Jaws became. Yeah. It's truly a miracle this film saw ever ever made it. Yeah. And if it's a bomb, I, we don't get any of those films, I think, on the top three that we mentioned. It might change our entire life. Yeah. It's interesting because it was the first major Hollywood film also to shoot out on the ocean. Everything would shoot on a back lot in the Universal Pond. Yeah. Spielberg yeah. said, he's like, I don't know why we didn't just do that. But yeah. you know what? Like, it's the second half of the film is that much more authentic because they're out on the ocean. As much as it made everyone sick and seasick and breaking down, like, there's a term called art through adversity. Yes. And I think some of the great films that go through just absolute hell to even just get a final cut. Apocalypse Now, the first Star Wars. We, you know, we can kind of go on and on. It's not for not everybody, but um. No, right, yeah. I think um, 
they ended up with a pretty remarkable product because everyone able, uh, everyone involved was able to persevere and just, let's just get this damn thing finished. <laughs> Look, if this movie doesn't make it, yeah, does it change the way we see summer films for, I don't know about forever, but for a decade? Yep. I mean, you think about, obviously it's set at a good time. Mm-hmm. A movie about sharks being released in the summer is me being Captain Obvious. Mm-hmm. There's no way this is a winter release. And you and I talk about that quite a bit. Mm-hmm. Why is the hell is this movie coming out? In, or why isn't this movie coming out yep. at this time? <clears throat> but if that movie tanks, or let's say never even gets released, yeah. man, who knows? Like Now we're talking about yeah. many of the other things that we're going to cover... Maybe not ever making Probably, it. Probably, yeah. Yeah. This is a huge risk. There's a lot banking on this making it. There weren't seasons mm-hmm. back then. There was like, oh, we have a good movie. It's called Ordinary People. Yeah. Ugh. Right? July! <laughs> you know? Yeah. You'd get maybe a rather large release, maybe per quarter. Yeah. But... I mean, for Christ's sakes, a film like The Exorcist came out geniusly Christmas Day. That's insane. That's insane. And it's one of the highest grossing films adjusted for inflation of all time. I think it's like number 10. That's the biggest movie going day of the year. Yeah. But was it back then? And what shocks me is how does this movie Mm -hmm. change Exorcist on Christmas Day to, okay, we still have the holiday season that's essentially Thanksgiving to New Year's. Mm -hmm. And then we have summer. Mm -hmm. And now if you think about the summer every single week... It's a new release that's trying to usurp the previous week's winner. Every single too much, so much so yeah. that we have dueling huge releases in the same weekends. It's now. pretty stupid now, actually. Like there's a lot of buffoons working in Hollywood that put giant films up against each other, and they just cannibalize each other when they could probably have a decent gross if they're just in a different time of year. There's too much going on in summer now. I mean, I'd say Godzilla and Rocketman is a perfect example of that. Well, like, we got that this week. Right. This this week, we got The Secret Life of Pets 2 and Dark Phoenix. The week after that, we have Men in Black International. The week after that, we have Toy Story 3. Like, Jesus! And prior to Jaws, any one of those would have been enough to win the box office for maybe two to three months. Yeah. Now... You have, it's, mm-hmm. this is how much it's changed, Jesse. Yeah. If your movie's released mm-hmm. in the holiday season yep. or the summer season and it doesn't win the box office or come in second with a heavy pull, mm-hmm. you're gone in two weeks because there's not enough theater space. Mm-hmm. That's entirely changed by this movie. You yeah. better win your opening weekend. Yeah. Otherwise, it's to the dollar theaters mm-hmm. or who knows, maybe nowhere. Yeah, films don't, they don't have the legs that films used to. Like here, the Jaws, like just, Films don't have legs because of fish. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But um, Jaws kind of just went all through summer. And what made it different, too, is there's a huge marketing campaign for this film. Clothing, board games, tie-ins. The iconic poster that's on your t-shirt. Look, I'm wearing it. I'm yeah. wearing the marketing right now. Yes. These guys right here. Not, not then, but different figures. It was different. There hadn't been, like, a merchandising capability to tie in with the film. Like, up to... Are they really making, like... The Patton action figures with George C. Scott, like they're not, they're not doing that, and that's 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 obscene. But then they also, it was the nationwide release uh, that changed it as well. Back then, films used to kind of like start small, and then it word sp- of mouth spread. Yeah, New York, L.A., and then kind of work their way into the Midwest. This was different. It was a nationwide. Everybody got it on that same day, and it changed. But part of the reason is it's, the movie's good. 
the movie's good. It, the movie's it plays good. well in the summer yeah. during this time. So let's get right back on it. Okay. Brody's depressed. He's do he does a cool little thing with his son where his son's trying to copy and emulate dad. And I always love that little bit. But Hooper shows up saying, You still have a shark problem and I'm leaving tomorrow. Um, but I'd like I'd really like to go see if 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 we're right or, or wrong, I want to go cut open that shark and kind of see for itself so they go cut open the tiger shark they pull a bunch of interesting things out of it a license plate came up from the gulf he didn't need a car did he (sighs) so there's still a shark problem out there so they go out on on kind of the bay there and kind of the shallow water because he probably feeds at night and they come across ben gardner's boat who ben gardner's been introduced earlier as kind of another roguish fisherman in the vein of quint not a psycho but his boat's there just abandoned and I think one of the best, and this was such a late addition, and it, it, this was Spielberg getting greedy, he says. He's like, man, there's some scary bits in the film, but I want like one more. This, they added this little part in. They filmed it in the pool of one of the producers, and they kind of poured milk in the water to give that green murky kind of glow. Oh, wow. And they threw Dreyfus in there, and out pops Ben Gardner's head like eyeless. That's a great jump scare. It still gets people. Like, we're watching it the other night, and my wife just, like, totally flipped out. She, she's seen this film dozens of times. But that that still plays well. It's a great, great scare. So, again, the shark, it's it's a problem. It's, it's still happening. And it goes to what we spoke about earlier. Yeah. The habitat, the water, mm-hmm. essentially acts in a horror film. I wouldn't say this is a horror film, but in the horror <laughs> genre. Okay, okay, you know what I mean? Okay, all right, okay. I almost... It, like, let me let me sort of yeah. walk that back a little bit and yeah. then walk it forward at the same sure, time if sure. I can. Yeah. The fact that you're in an unfamiliar environment, the water, mm-hmm. is the same thing as being in the basement in the house that has the creaky door. You're unfamiliar in that environment and completely helpless, whether it's the basement and the haunted house and it's dark, or the space station, uh, uh, Nostromo Nostromo and Mm -hmm. Alien, or the outpost in uh, the thing, Mm -hmm. the water. Yeah. You're you're helpless, Mm -hmm. Jesse. Yeah. And that's why you jump, because if that thing comes out through that window, Mm -hmm. if the shark comes out through the window, it's curtains, Hooper. Yep. Just has nowhere to go. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's so brilliantly crafted. It, yeah, it it has a bit of a slasher tendency to it. This kind of stalking nature that the, okay. the shark has, I'll give especially, you that. especially sure. in the second half of oh, the film. Oh yeah, he's like in full stalker mode. Yes, so I did. I did put that. It's almost slasher like in its in its delivery. But no, we're gonna have the biggest you know Fourth of July blowout ever on Amity Island, and people are coming from all over Connecticut, New York, Long Island to have themselves a day. But there's no one in the water. They got helicopters and, and the security patrol and everything. But people go back in the water. But, uh-oh, here comes the shark. Oh, no, it's just some two dipshit kids. That's a real bad hat, Harry. <laughs> and it's also the name of a production company, isn't yeah, it? Yep. Yeah, Brian yep. Singers. Yeah. And, you know, we get one of my, my favorite bits in the film, which the, the there's like a pond kind of by this, this beach. And the shark's not in the beach. He's ventured into the pond where... Brody's son, Michael, is on his new pontoon boat. And we get one of my other favorite shots. You know, there's like everything breaking down just made this film better because there's that great bit where like that guy's like trying to crawl back into his boat and the shark. Oh, yeah. You just kind of barely see it. And then he just gets pulled in. What's great about that, though. Yeah. The bird's eye view. I love that it's an animal's point of view, right? Bird's eye view. Yeah. Is when the shark swims underneath that guy, mm-hmm. you get the vast differences in size. Yep. It's to scale for the first time we see exactly how big that shark is because we haven't really seen it yet. Yes. We've seen a few glimpses and it kind of uh, has darted here and we see a fin and this. But this, we get the 
the scale and the expanse of this shark compared to the man in the boat and man it is probably five men across is how bigger that shark is compared to that poor bastard in the pond yeah and just shot brilliantly Mm -hmm. yeah so let's kind of get right to it so the amity summer season's gone to the dogs at this point and the only thing now is to hunt the shark who's just gonna keep feasting on here until he's until he's finished so we got to go to quint hire him out get the shark i'm bringing hooper along with me brody i'm getting on the boat too and i hate the ocean but this is the only thing left to do can i ask you a question yeah this is something that's always puzzled me about this film okay with horror Mm -hmm. one of the key components of horror is franchisability agreed yeah we've got to be able to extend the story and that's why michael and freddie and such never die well this franchise continues in all the worst ways right but i'm gonna go back to what you just said (laughs) okay it does especially the 3d version right if the shark is going to continue to navigate those waters until it's done feeding, does it continue until it's done feeding or does it continue in perpetuity? Because my question is, yeah. <clears throat> did they luck into the franchisability of said debatable horror, but let's say in this regard horror, yeah. because there's never not going to be people exactly. there for the movies that we need. Yeah. That's funny. Territoriality is what Hooper calls it as a matter of fact. Yeah. So I'm leaning towards they didn't look into it, but I'm curious to see what you think about that. Yeah, you know, possibly. You say franchisability, but that's something that also kind of wasn't at play in this time period yeah, there were a lot of godfather that's about it really. godfather 2 bride of frankenstein oh my god that's going back like two generations though. and you can find other sequels in there but not like big sequels this was like the first that this film also popularized i was going to talk about this later but better time now that popularized oh you have a big hit film you got to have a follow-up right you got to bring everyone back as much as you can for two reasons because yeah. you and i want it yeah number two because it's going to make money yeah i don't begrudge movie studios for that mm-hmm. i'm just curious yeah did spielberg and all of his infinite wisdom yeah have the insight and foresight to say to say no i don't think he did either just because they were just trying to get this film finished and i i don't think you could think about oh well the shark would unless you kill it is just going to keep going and going and going and going and going but uh yeah i think it's something they definitely lucked into and especially after the film was a hit right well what can we do just do more of the same and bring back the same people that didn't die <laughs> yeah <laughs> And that's kind of what separates bad sequels from the good. The ones that kind of just do the same thing over over again. Hangover Part 2. But mm. yeah, that's that's kind of that thing. So let's get on the Orca because this is... it's the Jaws is a film of two halves. You know, kind of the stalking nature of the shark and instilling fear in Amity Island. And then it's the second half on board the Orcas. These three... This th- iconic trio. And we got to talk about them because... They're of a different kind of class system. Brody's the every blue-collar working man sheriff. Matt Hooper has come from some big inheritance, and his job actually probably pays him like six figures. And then you got like crazy, psycho, spiritual, even Mr. Quint, who's, we're about to find out what's made him the man who he is in the best scene of the entire film. Agreed. But you got three very different ideologies on this boat now. One that wants to study the shark, one that doesn't even want to be here, but he's got to see this thing through the end, and one who's Mr. Captain Ahab, and this is his white whale. I wish you guys could see Jesse right now. We have these three pop figures here. Yeah, I'm pointing at all of them. Enjoying uh, some bourbon with us, yes. and he's pointing to each one of them, and we're having the conversation with each other 
to these three gentlemen here. I'm talking to them directly. <laughs> yeah. Quint's going to finish off this bottle if we're not careful. Yeah, he is. There's not that much left. <laughs> but don't you think that's... that's? Do you like how, how, how different each are? Because when we're on the boat here, I think that's where the conflict arises. Right, exactly. Yeah. So the excess that a lot of films suffer from, mm-hmm. we get a break from it in this, but we get a break from it with conflict that's personal. Mm-hmm. So these three guys yeah. have lots of issues they're going to work out yeah. or not work out on the boat. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, we have this other larger evil if you will yeah that's put them in harm's way so it plays out really well and that's why the second half of the film that you've mentioned mm-hmm. is so rewatchable yeah there's not a scene man i talk like i talk about this every week there's not a scene yeah. that is not filled with some version of conflict yeah and it's because if these three guys aren't getting along mm-hmm. then the shark has come to eat them mm-hmm it's just so well crafted. Well, let's talk about those scenes. So the first one we get is them just kind of, you know, out in the ocean. And, you know, Quint's like in like fishing reel mode, traps himself into this thing. Mm-hmm. And it slowly starts taking his reel out to sea. And he's trying to teach Brody a little bit about the sea and seamanship and tie a, uh, uh, one of these like nautical knots. And, you know, he finally gets it and out goes the reel. And this is the first encounter with the shark. And it kind of plays a tug and war with them. And... You know, at first, you know, this is Quinn thinking, man, I can take this thing down. I think it's at this point where he's like, we're dealing with something here that I've never seen before. He has a technique that's never failed, which is you shoot the shark with a harpoon that has a barrel attached to it. The barrel is buoyant, so then it forces the animal to the surface, Mm -hmm. which, number one, limits its range of mobility. Okay, so we check that. And number two, then the barrel on there acts as a beacon, if you will, because there's been a sounding device on there. So it's a pretty smart attack. It doesn't phase Mr. Jaws one bit. Mm -hmm. Get another barrel on him and the thing gets away with two barrels? In that opening sequence, they get two barrels on (laughs) him? No, they get the one One first and then the next day they get numbers two two and three. Might as well have seven. Yeah, exactly. It doesn't matter. Because the shark finally goes goes past the the boat and he says that's a 20-foot or 25, four tons on him. Mm -hmm. And they're in full panic mode. But prior to that is when we get this great chumming bit where they're trying to like lure him out and they're chumming the sea and... Chum some of this shit. Yeah, chum some of this shit because they have Brody. It's disgusting. Yeah, I can't imagine what that smells like. And out in another iconic moment, the shark just very gently peers out of the water and almost kind of just looks at him. So, you know what's really interesting to me in this scene? Yeah. If Quint comes in early and Brody has to get Murray Hamilton to check the box to allow the commission to hire Quint to catch the shark, then Brody's in a superior position. Mm -hmm. But on the boat, Quint makes it known that there is one captain on this mother. And it's him. And it's him. Mm -hmm. And he literally reduces Brody to less than ensign. Like seamanship 101 like here's a bucket no, of, he's, sh- of fish debris yeah he's, he's throw it in the water and then when you're done let's practice tying some knots yeah again. he's boat bitch at this literally point. yes yeah, yeah he's like do this do that hooper drives the boat brody yeah like kind of kind of thing from his crow's nest as he just barking orders yep. down, down here i think that's a really cool moment because what you're getting is play of power mm-hmm. and that's a lot of what the conflict on the boat between these three is if we're looking at Brody, mm-hmm. that's like science. Mm-hmm. If you're yeah. looking Hooper, at Hooper, I'm sorry, Hooper, <laughs> yeah. that's science. Yeah. If you're looking at Brody, I don't just incapable, incapable, like, yeah, he's just a novice. Mm-hmm. And then you get, you know, uh, Quint, and he's the standard tougher than leather, has been in the sun so much he doesn't even have a skin anymore. You know, they, sing the little song that he sings throughout the film. Farewell 
nothing to do to you fast Spanish ladies. <laughs> Hit it. Yeah, and, and it gets crazier and crazier as the film goes on. It's just like uh, a sea tune at beginning until it just becomes like a chaotic, insane like chant by film's end. Because they're all kind of going nuts as this film just, as the shark just, you know, totally toys with them. The thing that strikes me as much about that song mm-hmm. is as the Jaws, the shark has John Williams' score. Yeah. These three fools have their score as well. And when they start singing that song, mm-hmm. go back and I've seen it a million times. Yeah. Not one good thing ever happens mm-hmm. when they sing that song. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, really. Yeah. <laughs> I don't think that was done on mistake by Spielberg. I think that yeah. why did they why did they choose that song? And I'm pretty sure it wasn't Robert Shaw and his infinite drunkenness just coming up with some Irish folk tune. I'm surprised you actually know the lyrics because as it comes out of his drunken mouth, like oh. I, I can't even like hear it. Right. <laughs> I only know. Yeah. But yeah, it's excellent. So you know, the shark toys around with him, gets one barrel on him, takes him for a ride. But yeah, it's getting dark, and you know, these guys got to spend the night together now. This is going to be a long shark hunting venture. Yeah. And we get a great scene, a scene that's been parried in I think a lot of things, most notably probably chasing Amy. Where Hooper and Quint are actually comparing injuries. The thrasher shark that cut open my wetsuit. The this, 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 did this. I got an arm wrestling thing with this. Pulled me right over. Yeah. The death, the demise of my third ex-wife. And, and and Brody lifts up his shirt and he's got like a little kind of nick on his stomach. And he quickly like puts it away. Because he can't man up to these men and their experience. We do get a nice moment between Dreyfus and mm-hmm. Shaw here. Yeah. And that's... Richard Dreyfus pulls down his shirt kind of around his heart mm-hmm. and says that this scar is from Marianne Moffat and then has one of the worst movie laughs of all time. <laughs> that, ah, ah, ah. It's like a damn seal yeah. barking. She broke my heart. And then mm-hmm. we get to, I'm sure, the sound that you're going to play for yeah. Lures. And mm-hmm. let's actually break it right now so we can play some of that sound and we'll come back and talk about it. Noon the fifth day, Mr. Hooper, in Arcade Ventura. Soon she swung in low and he saw us to the young pilot lot. Younger than Mr. Hooper anyway, he saw us and he come in low and three hours later a big fat PBY comes down and start to pick us up. You know, that was the time I was most frightened, waiting for my turn. I'll never put on a life jacket again. So, oh, 1,100 men went in the war. 360 men come out and the sharks took the rest June the 29th, 1945. Anyway, we delivered the bomb. Okay, so it comes back, mm-hmm. and we come to find out that he was on... The USS Indianapolis. That was delivering the bomb yeah, to the, Indian the Lady. The, Hir- the Hiroshima bomb. And basically... Based on a real-life uh, scenario from history where this USS Indianapolis was actually torpedoed by a Japanese sub and just started kind of sinking out here in the middle of the Pacific... How long are they left in the water to fend for themselves? It's it seems, a day? Yeah, a day waiting for rescue, which who knows where rescue rescue could be, but in this water are sharks. Start circulating. And they just start picking off all these sailors just like one at a time, one at a time. So I think this is where the conflict between Quint and we'll just call him Jaws kind of emanates kind of this, I need to defeat this part from my past because... This changed him. This this made him the drunken fool he is right now. Two things about that. This is his Ahab moment for mm-hmm. sure. Yeah. And secondly, the delivery that Shaw has in the scene is one of the most memorable scenes of all time. Yes. Because he's so good in it. Mm-hmm. It goes from this drunken 
sing along, <clears throat> compare scars nonsense yeah. to a very somber story. Serious, yeah. About the death of a whole bunch of these soldiers yeah. that got eaten by these sharks while they just sat there in the water treading mm-hmm. water for their lives mm-hmm. until the planes came to pick them up. Mm-hmm. The sharks got a black eyes like a doll's eye. Oh, soulless. Yeah. yeah. I'll never put on a life jacket again. Chief. This is a great scene, you know, and it, the, the who wrote it's kind of been disputed throughout history, but if you could attribute it to one person, it's actually John Milius, who actually directed the Conan, the Barbarian films. The hired gun in the 70s and 80s, yeah, like and he the ran, script doctor, right? He ran around with the same crew with Spielberg yeah. and Lucas and Coppola and Scorsese and De Palma. Like, he was like <laughs> one of the gang and wrote this, like, one of the greatest monologues in film history. And, like, afterwards, you're just kind of, like, stunned because his last lines are like, well, anyway... We delivered the bomb. We delivered the bomb. And they just kind of sit there stunned, the two of them, just like, Jesus Christ, like, I can't believe what we just heard. And then they hear this whale, like, cooing outside. Mm -hmm. And then we get our next best song, which is them kind of have this drunken come-to-Jesus moment of, show Show me me the the way way to go. go. I'm tired and I want to go to bed. I had a little drink about an hour ago, and it went right to my head. And then, but, oh boy, here comes Mr. Jaws, and, and he just starts rip, ripping the boat apart now. Right. It's like he heard their singing. He's like, shut up out there. And we kind of we kind of get it again, and we kind of get that, that panic that instills them, you know, all of them. But then we really get it here on day two. This is when we get barrels number two and three on the shark. They don't do a damn thing. But then the boat just starts falling apart through all their madness. Like, it starts treading water. It starts flooding out. Quint's trying to run him out to, to shore to drown the shark. And he's he's essentially killing the boat. The boat's on light support at this point. Well, we'll go back to yeah. probably 15 minutes earlier in the film mm-hmm. when Brody tries to radio for help. <laughs> and he smashes the inter... Quint smashes the intercom system. You're sort of... Quint, you know that? Yeah, it takes a bat to it and just destroys it because, by God, yeah. he's going to solve this problem himself because that's what he does. I'm going to kill this shark. No one else. He ain't bringing the Coast Guard out here. I'm doing this. Right. Yeah. It's Meanwhile, like, the boats... I, there's one scene where they're shoveling water... or bucketing water out of the boat and somebody's in the camshaft below yeah. with smoke and... and like, this There's this boat's barely buoyant and the mo- And the moment that totally just, like, freaks him out is when the shark's, like, dragging all of them out. They're tied to the kind of the, these the little anchors out here. And it, it, he's pulling the orca out to sea and it's flooding... Everything's blowing up, and I think Quint just has this moment where he's like, "Okay, Hooper, I tried my way. Let's try your way now." Yep. So Hooper, Matt Hooper, this oceanographic man, has brought a shark cage on board this ship too, and he has tools on board that can kill this thing, like a shark dart, poison. But he's got to get in there with the shark and get close enough to be able to do so. And the tip of the shark dart poison device. Mm-hmm isn't strong enough or long enough to get through the skin so he's got to get it where in the shark's mouth yeah exactly this is a horrible plan (laughs) it's a horrible plan yeah the shark that obviously you know has beef with these people now he won't leave them alone and he's not going to stop until they're dead right so we get another great bit more great jump scares i always like that bit too where he's in the cage and the shark comes from behind and Foolishly, he drops the the spear. It goes flying off there, but Jaws just makes mincemeat of this cage. Okay, so the shark makes mincemeat of the cage. Matt Hooper escapes down to the ocean floor to get the spear. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, as they pull the cage back up, the shark that gets caught in the line of that cage Mm -hmm. is a real shark. Mm -hmm. Which is 
What? And wait a minute. Or wait a minute. Yeah. So there was a real shark that they chummed and lured. What the? F- yeah, they didn't chum it. They actually filmed. So there was two shark experts. I can't remember their names off the top of my head, but they actually filmed this footage in like Australia, right? With like uh like a toy dummy of Hooper in the cage, and they actually let a real shark like actually tear this thing apart. That is crazy. Yeah. To kind of get some more authentic footage. Because think about it though. At this point they had a sh- three mechanical sharks. And they all named them Bruce. They're actually named after Spielberg's lawyer. And none of them work. They're because Probably because the mechanics are getting wet. It's probably something that couldn't like be in water. So it's always breaking down. It's always malfunctioning. So think of that. That, that couldn't do what they needed it to do to that cage. It actually needed a real shark to mess it up. You know when they got that sequence. Yeah. They had to have just been jumping high five in. Because the Stark starts threshing in the line. And spinning. And turn, And you can see it struggle to get free of the line that it's caught in from the cage. Yeah. You had they had to have been in the dailies like oh my god we got the mother of all we shots got, we got a winner there's no way that they could have done that yeah. any other way than just serendipity just luck and but you know what it plays well and you know yeah when you see that shark that it's smaller it's smaller than the one we've seen yeah but it's so well done because it's a real shark a little more authentic who yeah. can a little more authentic yeah. it's really it's the real shark mm-hmm. you don't care do you get seasick Matt no. I really don't either. But maybe if we were on a boat for, you know, 18 hours a day for like yeah. seven or eight months. Yeah, we might get a little sick. Everyone on this set was just puking their guts out, fighting and hating each other. Spielberg didn't know if like any of the footage was working. It probably looked like just absolute shit in the camera. And back then, you know, everything shot on film. You don't get to like see a little like replay of it after you shot it you just kind of gotta hope that like oh man i hope what we got was great so until you get it developed you really can't see it so they're just kind of just like hoping for the best at this point and then we get our final climax where jaws literally leaps out of the ocean onto the orca and by this point the orca this is the this is the swan song for the orca because it can't take anymore and you know it goes for quint first he can't get away and this thing just chomps him up more on that in just a second is a funny a funny little bit but what are we left with we got okay i'm moving the funko pops now so brody's maybe dead in the in the shark cage quint's been eaten alive um and all we got is mr brody here who didn't want to be on this boat in the first place but he's got to kind of make sure this like sees its conclusion and he's like literally going to war with the shark. He smashes it with the know. boat sinking, and the shark is <laughs> swimming around, breaking the glass windows to get at him. Mm-hmm. It, it's it's moments till the shark is in his kitchen, literally. Yeah, literally, yeah, literally in the ocean, yeah. but not before he can put a scuba tank in his mouth. Quickly grabs, you know, his own, you know, powerful rifle and gets on the ship's mast. So as the ship is sinking, as Brody's going into the water, he's got one final confrontation with Jaws. And damn it, he's got to like, he's got to kill this thing. And thankfully, you know, Mythbusters disproved this. I saw the episode. You you can't really shoot a tank of oxygen and explode it the way it does. But fuck it, it's a film. Like it works, it works how it needs to. Blows the shark to kingdom come. I love when the shark is approaching at him in the water. Yeah. It's got the tank on the side of his and mouth. His teeth are his all... teeth are covered with with a quince skin, but they're like flesh. they're like falling apart too. Like you know what I mean? Oh yeah, man, yeah. it's 
brutal. Yeah, so he gets the kill shot, smile on your son, son of, of a bitch. Yeah, and <laughs> blows it up. It's such a great moment and just elation when he just sees what's left. And I, my dad and I always joked about when it shows that 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 um that that B shot there of the the ship falling back in the water. We always joked about that's Quint falling back down in the in the background there. He's one of them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So we kind of get this, you know, the shark's dead. We get this moment and out comes Hooper. He wasn't killed. But one of my favorite, you know, closing lines in, in all the film there, you know, they're paddling back to shore and trying to figure out what day it is because they've had such a fever dream out on the ocean. It's it's uh, Tuesday. And they're like, no, 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 no. Well, it's Monday, Monday, I think. Um, he's like, I always used to hate the ocean. And Hooper just says, I can't imagine why. So I think Brody's arcs come totally full circle. This really apprehensive sheriff who's let people boss him around the entire film, deathly afraid of water, kind of conquer this shark single-handedly, and now it's not an issue for him anymore. Right. Like he's really kind of kind of come into his own. And damn it, if it weren't the sequels that just totally just like shit on everything. Do you not like Jaws 2? Jaws 2's a worthy, okay sequel. Uh but you know, it's it's not great. It's not as good as this one, that's for sure. No, I think it's super entertaining though. But everything past this is just such a. a yeah. So we've done this on episodes past. We've tried to talk about the Terminator past that film and Alien past that film. Yeah. Uh, let's do that again. So you know, Jaws two like had the best one of the best taglines ever. Just when you thought it was safe to go back in the water, the movie the, the tagline sells the the film. You know, the shark's coming back. Yeah. It's a different shark, obviously. Two sharks. Yeah. And uh, you get you get um, what Brody, his wife, the mayor, all return, and his son's grown up, and they kind of go through the same thing all over again. Famously, electrocutes the shark at the end with that big piece of telephone wire. Do you know why Dreyfus didn't come back for the second one? I don't know. He's but Dreyfus is notoriously what a, a kind of a difficult actor to work with. I can honestly see him just like I'm not gonna go be in that thing because how could it be better than what we did he didn't even want to be in this movie he thought this movie was a piece of shit and then he finally saw it and was like oh wow they turned that into something jaws 3d jaws at sea world with the oldest brody son it's it's terrible it's one of the worst movies ever made jaws the revenge actually the shark kills one of the other brody boys and it follows the mother and the son down to the bahamas to get its revenge it's horrendous it's yeah totally michael kane said he only did the movie because he was building a house and that's why he took the movie it's like talk about being honest because it's the money it's terrible it's absolutely garbage i'm so shocked that this film for its legacy and you know how many how many people how many people like it how much money it made that they've never tried to like kind of remake this it seems kind of like fodder to like dabble into that and i hope i'm long dead before that ever happens because you know it'll be some CGI piece of shit. I'd like to say they don't need to remake it. Yeah. I hope it's we like... Get, well, we get a, a shark movie every summer. Whether it was The Shallows. Is that the Blake Lively one? Yeah. I actually like that film. Deep Blue Sea? I love Deep Blue Sea. <laughs> um, that kind of... There's like, even one coming... Well, there's... And then... The Meg? The, the Meg. Yeah, that Meg Isn't out. there something this summer too? Well, we're getting uh, uh, 47 Meters there you go. Down Part 2. Which I actually saw that first one. That wasn't terrible either. And then there's The Crawl. The one with the alligator, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. So there's stuff you can do with these like these uh, marine creatures, but I just kind of hope Jaws is in that camp where it's just like untouchable. Yeah. Just like I never need to see another Godfather in my life. No. There's there's certain films I just don't need to see again or redone again. Right. Because I don't know how you top that. Years ago, Lucas and Spielberg and all these drunk uh, directors were getting drunk on their excess 
of wanting to re-release our films and kind of fix them up. Notoriously, Lucas did this with the Star Wars special editions, but there was rumors that Spielberg was going to go back to Jaws and like do more stuff with the shark, and I'm glad he had some restraint to not do that because he would have ruined the film. Just leave it alone. Yeah, just right. leave. let Sleeping Dogs lie because the movie works because there's less. Well so. said, boy. That <laughs> boy, that's Rice well Smile said. presents. It works because there's less. It works because there's less. We've said so. that fifty times. Exactly. So I think now, time more than ever, uh, Matt. How would you rate grade Jaws? And real quick on our rating scale, we have Rocket, which is the worst of the worst. Uh, well, you know, well drink. You know, get that happy hour for three bucks. Drink till you uh, drown. Yeah, drink till you drown. Watch the film till you drown. Yeah. Uh, you got a well. And then single barrel and top shelf. So where are you at on Jaws? You might have flipped call and well, but anyway. So it's rock up well, call. Yes. Single barrel and top shelf. It's top shelf. Mm-hmm. It's top shelf. What else can you say? Yeah. This set a standard that summer movies will follow for the rest of the movie going experience. Mm-hmm. It's livelihood. It's ultimately rewatchable. There's never a time when I say, yeah, this is a bad part in this film. It's pretty well acted. Yeah. Um, you know, Dreyfus can come across as a little bit cheesy sometimes for me, but mm-hmm. I, I mean, look, we've sung its praises for an hour and seven minutes at this point, roughly. <laughs> yeah. So what else can I say? It's it's one of the all time greats. Yeah. Like we purposely both yeah. did not put this on our list of the best Spielberg films mm-hmm. because that would sort of let the cat out of the bag. Yeah. Like, like one of us was going to give this a bad review. It's totally in there. Uh, eesh, of course. Yeah. This is ahead of Munich and Poltergeist for yeah. me, but yeah. I can't just do that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's kind of a perfect film. Mm-hmm. I'm not even going to spend any more breath spending it on this because yeah. what else have we, can we say? Go. It, exactly. Yeah, yeah. It's, it has to be top shelf. I think this was, it's a film that gave Spielberg his career. It's a, a film that changed the summer movie landscape as we know it. Yeah. And you know, for you know, as a horror film, I think it works well as an adventure film. It works good as well. Three great protagonists. You know, name a, a more iconic trio of like men that just kind of don't like each other. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it, it it works. And I think again, speaking to art through adversity. I think when things go bad and kind of seeing how the actors, the crew, the director, the screener, how how they all react to just the shit hitting the fan. You know, I think you can come out with some pretty amazing results, and this is definitely one of them. Uh, it's the Pinnacle Shark movie. It spawned countless imitators. The one I forgot to mention. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Orca. Yeah. <laughs> the Orca, the killer whale. Yeah, it's, of course. It's kind of terrible. but Kind of terrible. Yeah. It, it, Jaws, after its success, everyone had to get in on the killer shark bandwagon at that point. And there's so many just shit movies that came out in the late 70s, early 80s. But... Yeah, it's a top shelf film. It's it's defined Spielberg. I think it's it's aged very well. It's infinite. I'm with you, Matt. It's one of those films I can just totally jump into it if it's on TV. I don't care what part it's in. I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and I'll I'll finish it out and I'll have a good time watching it every time. Uh, but yeah, that's Jaws. So let's wrap this up. I've had a lot to talk about with 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 the film today. And we, well, st- you, we st- mentioned like the best of the knockoff movies that to spawn this. Orca. <laughs> no, I mean like you mentioned. I've got. I'm gonna do you one better. Okay. It's called the Bermuda Depths. Okay. And it's got Connie Selleck in it. Have you ever seen that? Uh uh-uh. uh Oh my god! It's like this mystical story with Burl Ives, Connie Selleck, 
and a giant prehistoric turtle. Oh my god. Oh man, you have to watch okay. this film. Connie Selica is amazingly hot in this okay. film. God bless Connie Selica. Yeah, I'm gonna find this. Film. You have, yeah, you yeah. have to watch. And that this goes out to my buddy Joe Hacker, who okay. let me borrow his copy of this. Okay. I can't believe you don't know Joe, but mm-hmm. none of you probably know Joe. Yeah. I can't believe that this is a movie that you own, Joe. Shame on you. Give me your man card. Yeah, that sounds that sounds terrible. But I love I love terrible films too. They're Bermuda depths. Okay, excellent. Yeah. But. You know, I forgot to mention too, you know, Jaws also kind of introduced, you know, the sequel being kind of like a thing that studios also have to consider. That if you have a hit, you got to find a way to do the hit again. Yeah. So you had your Jaws 2s and it was well before, you know, Rocky 2 and films like Halloween 2 and Empire Strikes Back. Like this kind of Superman 2, this kind of, it started that trend too, which propelled through the 80s and 90s and today it's kind of all we got today right <laughs> toy story 4 are you kidding me that trilogy ended so perfectly and now you're tacking on like an anecdotal like second part to it we're pulling for stephanie on this though aren't we yeah i hope so she's a friend of ours excellent the writer yeah talk we'll, we'll talk to her one of these days be great to have her on someday yeah excellent so let's end with the nightcap you know, this this duncan taylor's amazing i agree it's it's propelled us through this film you know we only we only have a little bit left matt you should you should we'll both finish that up pour, right. pour us a little bit more all right but we started this conversation with talking about one of the the best opening seeds in film the kind of the the, the death of of chrissy uh on on the ocean here but that's not the only great opening scene in film there's been some amazing ones throughout film history so matt What's the best opening scene in a movie? It's not a death. It could be... Well, actually, in a weird way, it is metaphorically a death. Okay. So, this isn't going to surprise you when I tell you this. Okay. It's the hustler. Mm. Right? If you're going to give me that, one of my all-time five favorite movies on a tee, and let me take a full rip at it, I'm going to find a way to work the hustler in here. And it's a great scene. Yeah. This day and a half marathon where he ended up losing everything that he's. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, it, for all of you that have not seen The Hustler, we'll do that film one of these days. Damn right we yeah, will. Yeah. It's The Hustler for mm-hmm. me. The, the, like that. God bless Paul Newman. God bless Paul. And Piper Laurie. Yeah. We'll throw Jackie Gleason in there too. <laughs> if you ever let me say, yeah. God bless Piper Laurie. Okay. Great opening scene. Yeah, I'm with you. Okay. Your turn. Interesting. I have I have some interesting ones to kind of discuss because I think an opening scene is important, especially talking in the vein of screenwriting, which we're going to go to school on next week. Mm-hmm. But you kind of had to sell your reader, whether producer, actor, uh, whoever's buying it from you, on this bit. This has to be amazing. So in order, you know, you, you have to kind of really get this right out of the bag and the one i'm gonna go with the one that's kind of always stuck with me and it's legendary is scream you know you know that's another interesting franchise conversation for another day but talk about like 12 to 13 minutes of you know just drew barrymore on a telephone being kind of toyed with this kind of mystery person who's kind of flirtatious at first and then it turns into like psychotic like i'm gonna kill you bitch and he starts testing her on like on horror films, like, what was the name of like uh, the person in Friday the 13th? It was Jason. Jason Voorhees. I saw that movie 20 goddamn times. No, you should know that Jason's mother was the killer in the first movie. Jason didn't show up until the sequel. And he just starts terrorizing her a little. And it builds. And almost builds. She's brewing some, like, uh, um, 
pop secret popcorn on the stove top. <laughs> and as the scene starts tensing up, the popcorn starts like rising and rising and rising. Yeah. Until the point where she's just totally just butchered in the scene. Yep. Strung up by her intestines on her tree until her family sees her. Oof. It's 13 minutes. That's It's a long opening sequence. But I think it sets the tone for the film that much like... Um, but the, the boy in, in, in this scene, um, Alex Kinter, that nobody's safe in this film. If you're going to kill off the A-list star that you thought was going to be in the rest of this film, man, buckle up because you're in, for a, you're in for a ride. The brilliance of that and emulated in Scream 2 and Scream 3 mm-hmm. and stolen from let's whack our main star, Alfred Hitchcock psycho style, in mm-hmm. the first 13 minutes of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, that's a really solid entry, Jesse. Yeah. Uh, I'd forgotten all. I didn't come across that, but that's I think it's a, really that's well, really good, really well written by Kevin Williamson, who had quite a bit of a heyday in the mid to late '90s um, as a screenwriter. But also, it brought back Wes Craven into the horror genre. Think of this, Matt. Wes Craven did Last House on the Left, Hills Have Eyes, A Nightmare on Elm Street, and then followed that shit up with uh, Swamp Thing, Serpent in the Rainbow, People Under the Stairs, Shocker, just garbage and then people told him you know Wes you're kind of getting a little soft and so he's like I gotta change this so he comes back with this film and boy oh boy did like that like bring like the Wes Craven we knew like back you know while we're at it cheers to Wes Craven R.I.P. You got to meet the, you got to meet him one time, didn't you? We did actually. Mm-hmm. Uh, that same night that I met the guy that wrote or Ronchu set that I met Ronchu set, we yep. met him that night. That's awesome. It was a very kind gentleman mm-hmm. uh, to take the time to meet with a bunch of hack Q list writers. We weren't even D list; we were Q list writers. Yeah. At this event, that yeah, Wes Craven was a, was all class man that's awesome yeah uh so i want to mention that that's my number one but like a close kind of runner-ups like they all kind of are the same thing they set up the antagonistical element in the film this sets up the ghost face killer and another great opening scene i really like is actually from christopher nolan's the dark knight i was gonna do that one too that was my number two as well heck yeah man really sets up the joker and this great bank robbery high sequence as the force to be reckoned with as he just kind of eliminates the guys that he hired to help him rob the bank so he can take everything for himself it, it, in five minutes totally sets up the way that film's gonna go down and then another one was Inglorious bastards i think in 20 minutes <laughs> these are long sequences totally sets up hans landa as you know this butcher nazi jewish hunter who's going to use any methods necessary to accomplish his job for Adolf Hitler. It's funny that you brought up those two. Like You and I have spent some time together because yep. the the Batman film was certainly one of mine. Mm-hmm. I was going to give you another Tarantino, which is going to be Reservoir Dogs. Yep. Oh, yeah. Ooh. That opening scene like a created, right, like, created the Tarantino mythos. Mm-hmm. Everyone in the world was a knockoff writer trying to have cerebral yep. discussions about pop culture mm-hmm. regarding nothing. Mm-hmm. I would argue yeah. that that scene is the inspiration for the entire series, Seinfeld. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, so... It, yeah. That's great. We yeah. should start a podcast. We have some of the same thoughts sometimes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but yeah, that opening bit in Inglorious Bastards is... It's just dialogue. It's just two guys talking, but like as the layers unfold... Yeah. You realize how smart this Londa is, and he's a force to be reckoned with. Through brilliant performances through all three of those, so those were those were three that I, that I had to pick. I love a great opening sequence in a film. I almost chose Goodfellas too, as far back as I can remember. I always wanted to be a gangster, mm-hmm. like 
You know, it's great. I think if you start your movie kind of, kind of with a bit of a slow start, you know, I think it kind of kills the film for me and the films I like. Well, we'll get to screenwriting, like you said, next week. But one of the things you want to do, that opening scene introduces mm-hmm. either your protag or your antag. Mm-hmm. And you want to show them in their environment in a way that defines them for the rest of the film for two reasons. Number one, it makes them interesting. Mm-hmm. And number two, it creates nomenclature or a hierarchy that the character is allowed to play in, which makes them more accessible and understandable for us. Yeah. Like we've already got one of the two mm-hmm. foes figured out. Yeah. Um, I think Ghostbusters does something like that too, doesn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Excellent. Do you hear that, Matt? I do. A little bit about that. You know, busted makes me feel good. There's something strange in your neighborhood. On tap for next week, we have from 1984, Ivan Reitman's Ghostbusters. Another, you know, seminal, important summer vehicle that is equal points, hilarious, equal points, kind of scary, but I think 100 points, brilliant screenplay writing. Attributed to Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd. So next week, we're going to do something kind of interesting. We're taking you to school, listeners. If you ever wanted to know how to write a screenplay, what involves formatting, what you know things that you have to look for as you get from uh fade in to fade out we're going to cover that and maybe the best film you know film schools you know they they really like to hammer citizen kane down your throat as like how a story's crafted i would argue that ghostbusters is a little bit better in how it's executed yeah it's funny citizen kane and the apartment are the two that i always have Mm -hmm. brought to my attention Mm -hmm. and i couldn't agree with you more it's just more entertaining. Like, yeah. Citizen Kane is a brilliant film, but we, that's a story for another day. Yeah. But Ghostbusters is technically so solid mm-hmm. and at the same time on time and entertaining. And that's a trick, and you and I both know that. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So cheers, Matt. Cheers, Jesse. All right. Here's to the listeners. Here's to everyone who's downloaded uh, our podcast. You know, keep 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 it coming. You know, we love doing this. We love breaking down film. You know, the response has been awesome to say the least. You know, hit us up on email at rysmileproductions at gmail.com. We'll read your responses on air. You know, we love doing this. We love interacting with the users on Instagram and Facebook. Find hit us up on there. But you know, have a great summer swimming with bow legged women. Usually I have another line to add to that, but yeah, may you all have a summer filled swimming with bow-legged women. Excellent. We'll see you all next week. Everybody have a good week. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to stay in the know for future episodes. And be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, YouTube, Stitcher, or leave us an email at ricemileproductions at gmail.com. Jaws is property of the Zanuck Brown Company and Universal Pictures, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Hey, Chief. You try this. Made it myself. Pretty good stuff. <laughs> Thanks. Here's to swimming with bow-legged women. <laughs>